Second Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14, going through to chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Last week, as we considered how we are to respond from within to the troubles that come from without, we saw that the spiritual qualities that we are to be maturing in and therefore manifesting in every situation, those spiritual qualities are purity, understanding, patience, kindness, sincere love, and truthful speech. And remember, Paul is stating that this kind of response to troubles includes how we deal with dishonor, slander, and discrediting even from those who are inside the church. That's what Paul was facing from many in the Corinthian church. And it is that possibility of there being trouble of there being troublemakers within the body of Christ that brings us to that first phrase that we just read this morning, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, it's possible that you've heard this phrase as referring to marriage or business, monetary, monetary sort of partnerships. Don't marry an unbeliever don't go into business with an unbeliever. But it's very clear from the context of what we're reading in 2 Corinthians so far, all these chapters, you know, through these first six chapters, what we're going to continue to read in the next few chapters. It's very clear from the context of how Paul phrases this and what he's saying that this phrase is not explicitly about marriage or business relationships. He's not talking about that really. Now, you can take that implicitly, you can understand that, you can understand there's a principle that he's going through, we can come back to that. But, Paul is building on a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, which gives a very practical directive. God made a very practical statement to the children of Israel. He said, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. What is Deuteronomy 22.10 referring to? A yoke 
now that we've come so far from farming and everything else and we don't really have these things common in our context, you may not know what a yoke is. But a yoke is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals. Now, you could have a yoke with multiple animals in it, right? It's not just two. But the idea is that it's a wooden cross piece that goes across and connects or is fastened to the neck of this animal so that when the animals that are yoked together move forward together, they will pull a plow that is connected to that yoke. So there is a yoke going across the animal's necks and there is a plow that is connected to that yoke and a heavy plow. And as the animals pull forward, this plow starts to furrow the ground. It digs into the ground and it makes a ditch. It makes a line in the ground into which then seeds are planted and therefore a a field is sown or cultivated. So that's the idea, that there is this yoke that is put on the two animals, or multiple animals, in this case, as Deuteronomy is referring to just two, two animals, and they are, the two animals are expected to be equally matched so that they can pull the yoke in a straight line. An ox and a donkey would not be equally matched in size or strength and would therefore not be able to accomplish the purpose for which they were yoked together. The yoking together was not so that the ox and the donkey can spend time together. The yoking together was so that they would pull the plow, so that they would furrow the ground. And so if you have two animals that are completely mismatched in terms of size and strength, you will not be able to effectively plow the field. So, Paul is pointing out that in the church, a person who believes in the word of God, the will of God, and the purpose of God, cannot work together with someone who does not believe in the word, the will, and the purpose of God. You may absolutely associate, you may associate with and be loving to, you may associate and be kind and patient and compassionate with everybody. You should be kind and compassionate and patient and you know, all of that with everybody that you meet. But you won't be able to work together with someone to fulfill the purpose of God unless you are agreed on that purpose and how to achieve it. And in Amos we have the verse that says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? Well, that agreement means that you know your destination and the route that you should take to go there. And here, if the animals that are not able to plow together, not able to be yoked together, can't do that, if the animals can't accomplish that, you will not fulfill the purpose that you had intended. So, Paul is speaking about those from in the church that you need to work with who are not believing in Jesus. Now, let me be clear. This is not to suggest that if you have any kind of a disagreement with someone else in the church, you can immediately judge them to be an unbeliever 
and disassociate with them. If that were the case, Paul would have had to disassociate with the Corinthian church. There were a number of people there that were disagreeing with him. There were people there that were opposing him. There were people there that were questioning his authority. His letters, his letters to the Corinthian church and the Galatian church and the Ephesian church, in, in these letters, he is all about reasoning and pointing to the truth and refuting things that they brought up with, with those people that were disagreeing with him and he's seeking to point them to God and God's truth. So he's clearly not just declaring somebody who disagrees with him to be apostate in some way and then saying, I'm, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with you. He is reasoning with them. He is trying to persuade them. He prays for them. He loves them. He goes through all of that activity in order for them to also come to a particular agreement to understand the word of God. And so what Paul is saying is what we've already encountered in 2 Corinthians, in other, you know, the previous chapters and in other scriptures, that disagreements with a brother or a sister should be or may be in the context of disagreement with the gospel message. The gospel message is that God exists and seeks to have a personal relationship with us. God provided the means through Jesus by which we could be reconciled to God, restored in the relationship with God that had been broken by our sin, and that we could be saved not by the goodness of our own, not by any goodness of our own, but by simply believing and receiving what Jesus has done for us, and therefore we are brought into that relationship with the Lord. Now if you believe that gospel message, what Paul is saying is, then you should not be yoked together trying to fulfill what God wants you to do with someone who doesn't believe the gospel message and may be working to propagate a false gospel. So, Paul goes on from making that opening statement to emphasize the differences that result from following the gospel message or following a false gospel. He says, here's what's going to happen. These are the conditions. These are the, the things that will happen if you don't follow the gospel message but end up propagating a false gospel. And he says, there are five results of believing the gospel. When we believe the gospel, there are five things that result from that. Now, as you go through the scriptures, clearly there are different portions of scripture that emphasize different things. So, for example, in this list that we're going to go through here, it doesn't talk about freedom, but in other places it says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, clearly there are benefits that are not counted here. He's simply highlighting five of the results, five of the conditions, five of the changes that take place in us as we believe the gospel. And what he does is he uses this question form. What does this have in common with that? What does this have in common with that? And by asking that question that way, he's getting us to say, well, no, they don't have anything in common. Right? He's helping us to understand that and to you know, understand that the stark contrast and difference between these five conditions or the two parts of the five, each of the five conditions. So the first one, he says, what, you know, what does this have in common with that? What does righteousness have in common or what is 
when you look at righteousness versus wickedness or lawlessness. They have nothing in common. Light versus darkness. There is no fellowship. There is no union. There is no connection between those two. Christ versus the devil. There is no harmony between Christ and the devil. Believers versus unbelievers. He says there's nothing shared. There's nothing shared between believers and unbelievers in that sense. And then the fifth one, temple of God versus idols. There is no agreement between temple of God, between the temples of God or the temple of God that is ourselves and idols. So if you look at each one of those things, in believing the gospel, we have been made the righteousness of God. Instead of being condemned for our wickedness or rebellion against God, we have been brought into right standing with God. We are now empowered to live a righteous life in Christ. In believing the gospel, we have been transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God, in our believing the gospel and responding to the gospel, we have been translated, transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In believing the gospel, we now belong to the Lord Jesus and not to the devil. We are no longer a possession of or belonging to your father, the devil, as Jesus himself says it. You know, he says, we are now God's possession. We are Christ. We belong to Christ. We are found in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. In believing the gospel, we now belong to the Lord Jesus and not to the devil. We have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price from the previous possession and now live, move, and have our being in Christ. In believing the gospel, we are now grafted in and belong to the family of God, to the body of Christ, to a community in Christ of fellow believers. We're not in the community or in the harmony or in the fellowship with unbelievers, but we have been called, we have been set apart into this community of believers. And in believing the gospel, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've gone through those portions in the past and I'm not going through a lot of that, but the idea that the presence of the Lord now dwells in us. And it's not any longer the somehow the presence of God in some object that was never the case. God is God from the very beginning says, don't make idols, don't do those kinds of things, don't, don't try to capture that in any other way, but rather, I am with you, my presence is in your midst, and you will see me, and you will you know, see my glory, and you will witness my presence. But as we come into the new covenant, into the 
presence of the Lord that is ushered in by the giving of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises, the Bible says that we are now the temples of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord comes and indwells us and his presence fills us. And so when believing the gospel, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled with the presence of the Lord himself. I want to draw your attention to an important point about the change of conditions, these transformations that the Lord has wrought. It is not because wickedness or lawlessness is eliminated, not because the darkness is driven out and there is only light, not because the devil has been permanently disabled and removed, and not because unbelievers are separated from the believers like the chaff from the wheat, or that idolatry has been abolished that we are where we are. So we are not sitting in the presence of the Lord. We're not saying we belong to the Lord Jesus because all those things have already taken place. In fact, even while wickedness, darkness, the devil, unbelievers, and idols remain, the Lord has consecrated us to himself and has empowered us to remain holy in the Lord. And you'll also notice that although wickedness, darkness, the devil, unbelievers, and idols have not been done away with, the Bible states that when the Lord returns, there will be a final judgment for all that is opposed to God. There will be no wickedness in the new heavens and the new earth that Christ establishes. No lawlessness. No sin. The kingdom of God will be filled with the light of the glory of God. The Bible says there is no darkness because his presence and his glory will give light. The devil will be bound and cast out forever. Unbelievers will be judged and the Lord will be worshipped. One day, all these things that we see, all these contrasts that are stated, all these situations that are before us, one day, all of them will come together or all of them will be addressed when Christ returns. But the question is, why does the Lord allow all that is opposed to him to remain now? Why didn't he just judge it and remove them at his first coming? Why didn't he say, all right, I've come. I've given my life for you. And therefore, all of this is done with. But he doesn't. He didn't. He did not establish his rule and reign in that heavenly kingdom on the earth at his first coming. We know from the word of God that that will happen in a second. But he is doing this. He has done it. He has allowed these things to remain. He is patient with human beings because God desires that none may perish. He says, or the word tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone may come to repentance. So why, does, why do things seem the way that they always are? In fact, in 2 Peter, or Peter's responding to the, to the criticism that everything is the same as it always was. Nothing's changed. And he says, look, the Lord will return. He will judge. He will do everything that he, is going, that he has said he will. But he has been patient 
He has not brought about punishment or judgment or anything else because he is desiring for us to repent. He is desiring for the church to fulfill its purpose to be ministers of reconciliation, to preach the gospel message, to take it to the people around them and to tell people about Jesus so that they may be saved, so that they may be restored in relationship with God, so that they will not be separated from the Lord, but that they would have life. Which means that until the Lord returns, until he returns, since he has chosen to allow these things to remain, we don't need to bemoan increasing lawlessness. We don't need to say, oh, everything is terrible. You know, oh, look at this. You know, the sin is increasing. All the stuff is happening around me. We don't need to bemoan lawlessness. We don't need to curse the darkness. Oh, look at all these vile things that are happening. And, you know, this is the problem. You may be aware of these things, but my point to you is that if you're consumed with bemoaning lawlessness or cursing the darkness, or you go looking for the devil so that you you can then rebuke him, you know, let me go see where the devil's active and I'm going to go rebuke him and stop him and do all these things, or I'm going to disassociate with unbelievers and I'm going to separate myself from any kind of association with unbelievers, or I'm on a campaign to destroy every idol, everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. I'm going to destroy it. If that's what's consuming you, then you have paid attention to the wrong points about these questions, about these states that we have to be in. Because what the Bible is really telling us, that instead of pursuing those things, we need to pursue righteousness. We need to live righteously. We need to shine the light of God. We need to remain in Christ. We need to love everyone. And we need to be filled with the Spirit. If we're living like that, it will make a difference. The world doesn't have to hear us cursing the darkness. The world has to see us shining the light. The world doesn't have to understand the arguments against all of those things. The the world has to hear the gospel message for the Lord Jesus. So we would live our lives in such a way that we manifest the Holy Spirit, that we live consistent with this call of God and the gospel message that would resonate in our hearts. If we're doing that, then that's the message of hope that the world will pay attention to. Now, as we keep reading the passage that we did, it is very clear that it is possible to live like this. It is possible to shine the light. It is possible to live in righteousness. It is possible to live in Christ, to live and move and have our being in Him. It is possible to do this. It is possible to be filled with the Spirit because We have been restored to an intimate relationship with the Lord. We have been adopted into the family of God. If we were on our own, we wouldn't be able to do this. But because we have been brought into the family of God, because we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, because we have that relationship with the Lord, we can live like this. And so verse 16, it says, as God said, 
I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This, this promise of God is made up of two promises of intimacy. Two promises. It, it, this, this scripture that Paul is quoting here comes from two different passages in the Old Testament. One is from Leviticus chapter 26 verses 11 through 12 and that was at the establishment of God's covenant with the children of Israel at Sinai when, and it's the first exodus when God brought the children of Israel out of Egyptian captivity to the promised land. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I'll make, your, I'll make my dwelling among you and you will walk with me. And I will be walking with you. I'll be, my presence will be with you. So that was that promise there that he made in Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. But a very similar promise is made in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27. And that is a new covenant that is established when it is the second exodus of the children of Israel, when God brought the children of Israel out of Babylonian captivity and back to the promised land. And so all of these transitions that are taking place in the history of the children of Israel and all the ways in which he is leading them out of captivity and to himself when he restores them, he says, I will make my dwelling among you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And that promise comes from four different scriptures in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7.14, Isaiah 52.11, Ezekiel 20.34, and Isaiah 43.6. He's combining these truths and he's saying, look, this is what the Lord says, that I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. That's an adoption statement. That's an adoption formula saying, you know, I, I have taken you as my own. And it's used in scripture to indicate that covenant relationship between God and his people. That's the promise of God. That those who believe in the gospel message are called and restored. We have the righteousness of God. We have all of these things that are uh, uh, true for us now. We have been brought into light. We are in Christ. We are, we are in the fellowship of believers. We are indwelt by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are the temples of the God himself. And because of all of that, we are now set free. We are now made children of God. We have life. Which brings us to our point of application this morning. That we respond and apply by yielding to the Spirit to be purified. You see, right in the middle of this, uh, this chapter 6, this passage in chapter 6 that we read, right in the middle of that passage in verse 17, even as he's saying, you know, I will be with you, I'll walk with you, and so on. And then right before he says, you are my, my sons and daughters, in verse 17 it says, therefore... Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. There was a response that God was looking for from the people. To say, I want you to respond to me and the promises that I'm making and the things that I'm doing to come to me in holiness, in consecration, in separation. 
And that's the same truth that we come to at the end of this passage that we read in chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1 declares this. Therefore, since we have these promises, what promises? Of restoration, of intimacy, of adoption. Because we have these promises that we've just read, because our state has been changed, because our condition has been altered, because we have these realities in our life right now. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Body and spirit here just means anything that impacts your life, anything that is pertaining to life and godliness. He says, because we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What is the purpose that we have to live in this earth for? To be ministers of reconciliation, to continue to share the gospel message, to go out into all the world, to be ambassadors of Christ, absolutely. But there is a personal responsibility that we are called to have, that we would purify ourselves, that we would say, Lord God, remove from me, remove from my heart, my mind, my hands, my feet where I've gone. Remove anything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, that you, Lord, Holy Spirit, as I yield to you, would be at work in me to continue to bring me to you, to perfect me, to transform me, to make me more like Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our cry. You know, we've seen that a necessary inner spiritual quality is that of purity. We looked at that, you know, when troubles come, we respond with the spiritual quality of what? Of purity. Why? Because when the Lord is purifying us, when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, when we are being sanctified, consecrated for Him, then we will respond to a trouble very differently than if we are not in that experience, in that realm of purification. But here, as we, you know, we look at this, remember, we are being purified so that we can stand before the Lord. We're being purified so that we can stand before a holy God. We are being perfected in holiness so that we can come into the presence of the Most Holy. And so we are actively engaged with the Lord's work in us to purify us, to perfect us, to make us holy so that we can have communion with Him. And there's just one more statement I want to make about this yoke of the Lord. You know, this call that the Lord has, the statement that He says He come into my presence, do these things. I want you to live for me. I want you to you know, go forward in these ways. I started out by saying this idea that we have to be yoked equally and not to be unequally yoked has to do with how we will work together with those that are in the body of Christ. But you know, the Lord never calls us to simply do something on our own. He comes alongside us. He bears the yoke. He takes up the burdens. He goes and does the work too. And the Bible describes us as co-workers, as co-laborers, as 
servants in the harvest field in which the Lord also is at work with us. He's, he's both the master and the servant. He's both the Lord and the one who is at laboring. And so here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus not only saves us from our sins, but he also calls us to co-labor with him, to be yoked with him, and to be yoked together with other believers to do the work of the Lord. Even as he perfects us, builds us up, strengthens us for the labor, and fulfills his purpose in and through our lives, he teaches us, he refreshes us, he takes care of our cares that we have cast on him, and he gives us rest. Are you struggling? Are you just not having peace of mind? Are your burdens, are your cares weighing you down? Just consider where and how you are yoked. Are you yoked with Jesus? Are you yoked with those that would be of like precious faith? Are you yoked to fulfill the same purpose of God? Are you yoked to see the plan of God coming to pass? Are you yoked with God's strength, God's power, God's destination, and all that he would purpose for you. I want to challenge you this morning that, you know, we don't look at these kinds of statements, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and say, well, yeah, yeah, that means I don't have anything to do with that. We have to ask ourselves, what is it that we have allowed into our lives? What ways of thinking? What worldviews, what actions, what associations, what relationships that compromise my walk with the Lord, that compromise my plowing the field, sowing the seed, reaping the harvest? What is it that the Lord wants to purify in me? And as I yield to the Holy Spirit and submit to Him, Lord God, you come and do this work in me. You come and transform me. You come and change me. If that's what's happening, if that's what's regularly happening, then we have opportunity to rejoice, not to be burdened, because we will have the joy of the Lord. We will find this yoke to be light. We will not be overwhelmed and overcome and burdened, un going under the weight, but we will say, Oh Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm yoked together with you. I'm yoked together with my brother, my sister. I'm, I thank you that, Lord, you have called me into a divine purpose. And I praise the Lord that it will be fulfilled with strength. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you have called us to a great and holy purpose. And we pray, Father, that we will be diligent that we will be, Lord, disciplined, that we will be committed to letting your work be fulfilled in us.
so that indeed, Lord, your purpose will be fulfilled, your work is accomplished, completed, and your kingdom advances. Father, we thank you that there will come a time in the future when you return. And Lord, all that we see around us that is awry will be set right. In the meantime, help us to focus on that which you have given us, all that you have brought us into, everything that you have called us to. Help us to focus on that. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we are, Lord, manifesting the righteousness of God, that we are shining the light of Christ, that we are living, moving, and having our being in Christ so that it is clear that we are hidden in Christ. There's nothing else to be seen. That, Lord, we are making it a point to fellowship with believers, to come into communion and to union with them. And that, Lord, that we will be temples of the Holy Spirit allowing you to indwell us, to work in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.